tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, episode 15 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. I'm excited to announce a brand new contest where one of our lucky listeners will win a brand new car. Oh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, uh, I have some exciting news of my own. Do you mind if I cut in to share it with the listeners? Well, actually, it's not really the best time to Oh, thank you so much. So, I know the world of audio drama is packed with amazing stories, but those of our listeners who haven't checked out the Leviathan Chronicles are missing one of the best. It's an epic adventure and has just finished Season 3, bringing the main story to a thrilling conclusion, and it's available for free wherever you get your podcasts. You may hear some voices you recognize in there too, like Erin Lillis, Dan Zapula, Erica Sanderson, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, Mike Del Gordio, Graham Rowett, and me. And my good friend Christoph has now launched a Kickstarter to build new stories both within the Leviathan universe and without, and you can find all the info at leviathanchronicles.com. Please do listen and support if you can. And in other news, the horror podcast I run with Mark Nixon, Shadows at the Door, has finished its second series, and we're releasing some bonus content like Drunk Ghost Stories, a Christmas special written by Gemma Amor, and an actor's roundtable with the lovely Erica Sanderson and others. We pride ourselves on bringing a mix of adaptations of old stories from such authors as M.R. James, Charles Dickens, and Washington Irving, to new tales from modern writers, but all with the quiet atmospheric chills that are so apt for a Christmas Eve by the fire. You can find Shadows at the Door just like the Leviathan Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, So, thank you so much for letting me share that. Uh, So, you were saying something about a lucky listener winning a new car? No, 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 no. I was saying they could win a new carbonated beverage of their choice. But it seems anticlimactic now. Yeah, it does rather take the fizz out of things, doesn't it? I'll let you get on with the show. Agreed. So now... Let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet two friends heading home after a concert. You know what it's like, buzzing from the music, trying to find your car in the parking lot, feeling like a post-show bite to eat. But in this tale, shared with us by author T.J. Lee, the friends find they're not alone in the parking lot, And someone there is doing more than just clowning around. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Atticus Jackson, and Jesse Cornett. So stick to the drive-thrus if you want some food. And whatever you do, don't honk if you're hungry. Portly, 
haggard clown stood opposite, clutching a pathetic sign from rotting cardboard with crude marker scribbled across the front, his putty-stained gloves and sour facial expression giving the whole thing an even weirder vibe. His frayed white outfit was smeared with red, black, and gray putty, some of it practically dripping off of him as he moved his body at awkward angles to accommodate the feats of the cardboard. What the fuck? Jesse and I exchanged a look of bewilderment at the absolute state of the man some 20 feet away from us in the rapidly dwindling parking lot. It was late. There'd been a phenomenal concert across the street where my ever-daring friend Jesse got a little too rowdy and had his face kicked in. We were absolutely engrossed in his hilarious wincing before the sound filled our ears. The smell assaulted our nostrils and our eyes felt like they needed bleaching after reaching the source. Well, I don't think you mean hungry. I think you mean honk of your horn. Ow! Jesse, still clutching his nose, sounded almost comically congested. I punched him hard in the ribs and refused to break eye contact with the meat clown as he gingerly twirled the sign around, the cardboard threatening to shatter like his pathetic frame. The sound carried on the wind, but it wasn't strong enough to make out. I thought maybe he was coughing as Jesse continued to bitch and moan. What the hell, Rich? He rubbed his arm dramatically, barely paying attention to the meat clown shuffling towards him. But I was. Something about him just felt off. So when he started swaying from side to side and closing that gap, my hair just stood on end. Jesse, on the other hand, fueled by adrenaline, walked confidently towards him and held a hand to his ear. Tell me a joke, Brother Penny! He bellowed, fully expecting laughter to break out at any moment. But it didn't. (laughs) The sound became clearer. Each consonant gurgled out in a guttural drone, his eyes wide and piercing, amid a sea of white makeup and thick black eyeliner. A red sigil painted on both sides of his cheeks and joining down at the chin. He edged closer, gripping the sign tightly, nails digging into the cardboard, and I swear one began to peel as it was forced further in, black flesh poking out from underneath. You have to speak up, my man! So far, your outfit is way funnier than your routine! (laughs) But when the clown kept walking closer... His laughter petered away very quickly. Before I'd even had a chance to close the gap and pull Jesse away, this macabre mascot was face to face with him, literally. I immediately walked towards them, sensing danger, but with every step came new clarity on his features. And I'm ashamed to say I slowed down when I heard him properly. But it was guttural, low, elongated like a rumble in his diaphragm that his throat was barely able to push out beyond a croak, the last gap of a dying soul rushing to leave a decaying corpse. His eyes were the sole thing on him that looked alert. The white paint wasn't white paint. It was sallow, malnourished skin stretched to the absolute brink over gaunt cheeks and frail limbs. His outfit's putty was covered in flies and maggots. The stench was enough to make me gag. Jesse stood frozen in horror as the clown pressed his face directly onto his, unblinking as he continued his bizarre and unnerving cry. 
As I pulled Jesse back by the scruff of his neck, a sickening squelch sound followed by a snap cut the air and stopped the bizarre honk. It was a portion of his nose. The gangrenous flesh was still attached to Jesse as he screamed and pulled at it, desperate to get it off of his face. Though the clown seemed completely nonplussed by the issue, he simply bowed, wiped his hand, and held the sign up, walking away from us and towards a small food shack at the far end of the parking lot, where the woods began. It had a few benches with some people sat around it, and black smoke was billowing out of its chimney top, but the inside was a mixture of too far and too dark to make out. Dude, that is the grossest prank ever! This isn't YouTube! Jesse shouted after him, but was clearly too frightened to pursue. He finally ripped the clown's flesh off of his nose and stomped on it, calling it shitty putty as he did. But as we got a little bit further away, the same sound rang again. A guttural, almost muffled and elongated honk. Maybe that's not the best way to describe it. It didn't sound like the honk of a car horn or any horn, but the physical sound we would make if we just lengthened out the word when saying it. Still, it filled the empty parking lot and I looked around for its source, unlocking the truck as I did so. Jesse, the fuck you think he is? I was craning my neck as if somehow the weird fucker had grown wings and turned into the ultimate nightmare fuel for any sane person, a flying clown. When I turned to look back, expecting Jesse to be halfway into the car and grabbing the ox cord so he could blast my ears with coat orange, I saw him kneeling on the floor and clutching at his stomach. I'm... I'm so hungry. He winced, pulling at his stomach, his head shaking profusely. I thought he was having some kind of food poisoning moment and didn't know if I should move him or give him some room for the impending explosion. But before I could even move, I heard that sound again, clearer and more pronounced. Honk! Jesse was making it. I looked at him while he was still clutching his stomach. His mouth hung open and the noise rang out, filling my ears and giving me goosebumps. Not knowing what else to do, I got him to his feet and started towards the truck. Come on. I've got food at mine, if that's what you need, but I really think you should get to the hospital. No! He pushed me away with surprising strength. It took me aback. I stared at him in shock as his face grew wild, instinctual, maddened. I need to eat. It's too far, but there's that place right there. He pointed a shaky finger to the shack that the mascot had wandered off to. That will do. It's not far. Come on. He winced again before setting off. You just want to follow what could be the end result of Pennywise fucking a zombie? Dude, he just freaked you out. He freaked me out. Can't we just get food at home? If I'm honest, I was pleading more for me than him. Clowns bothered me at the best of times. But this one, being devoid of joy entirely, set me off all the more. Jesse wasn't having any of it, though. He sauntered off and spoke less and less as we got closer. The shack was pretty sizable and there was no car attached. Instead, it was just placed directly onto the concrete with huge metal clamps on the corners jutting out. It had a dingy sign written above it, but it must have been another language or made up of the same symbols on the clown's cheeks because I couldn't make heads or tails of it. The cook must have been absent as the inside was pitch black, save for some swift movements from something within. The benches had a couple of homeless people sleeping on them, but given the part of the city we live in and the late hour, I wasn't surprised. That rotting stench hit me again as we got closer, and 
I had to hold back vomit, covering my mouth and my nose with my sleeve. Oh, my God, Jesse. Can you smell that? Come on, man. They're obviously closed. We should... But Jesse was practically rushing to the table and ringing the bell. A fucking plate with a stack of discolored meat appeared before my fucking eyes. If there were a pair of hands doing the work, I didn't see them. Jesse didn't even wait to pay, just left his wallet on the side and took the food to the nearest bench, gorging himself on the food and moaning. I tried to get closer, but the smell was so utterly overbearing. A sweet tinge with sickly rot that I thought I was going to pass out. Wait in the truck. I'll be ready as soon as... As soon as I'm... Oh, God. Oh, my God, yes! Jesse was drooling between bites. Thick globs of saliva as he scarfed the food down, almost choking before continuing. I was so lightheaded at the time that I didn't think it'd be so bad if I went for a quick drive to clear my head. I nodded and rushed away from the smell as fast as I could, desperate for clear air. Turning on the AC and putting some piano music on, I tilted back the driver's seat and rested my eyes for a few minutes. Jesse knew where the truck was and he'd wake me when he got in. What's the harm? I felt my eyes grow heavy and before I knew it, sleep overtook me. I came to before I'd opened my eyes and I'm so thankful I didn't immediately do so. I could hear the groans, the dripping of the meat, the gaudy, shambolic outfit swam into focus. The meat clown was leaning over me, making that fucking noise. I heard a sound I couldn't place, like he was scraping the wet meat from his clothes. I wasn't about to let him put that shit on me, so I instinctively leaned my head forwards and smashed into his. I immediately regretted my choice. My head collided firmly with the dashboard and my ears began ringing. He was sat in the driver's seat and I had miscalculated. But as I turned to scream at him to get out, I saw his face. Wide-eyed and with a switchblade to his eyelids, he was rapidly slicing through them with remarkable precision and skill all the while making that dreadful sound, but it was changing. He split one eyelid free, the eye rolling in its socket. He started on the lower one as I stood frozen in fear and horror. In less than 30 seconds, both eyelids were gone, and he cut the soft stalk, removing the eye in one slice before cupping it in his hands, making that sound. He put his hands out towards me as I rapidly scooted away. I could see the eyelids and the eye were rotted, fetid, and decayed. He persisted, pushing it towards my mouth until I had no room to move. My hand reached for the handle, and all my weight fell out and back onto the concrete. The next thing I knew, the clown was holding me down as he forced his hand down onto my mouth, filling it with soft meat. He pushed hard on my jaw against my will and As it burst in my mouth, I felt my vision fade and the world around me shake. His expression never changing as that sound carried me into unconsciousness. The first thing I felt when I awoke was pure disgust. I retched and 
tried to vomit, but it wouldn't come up. Not even when I put my fingers down my throat, as if there was nothing in my body to regurgitate. Confused, I looked around and saw I was in the driver's seat. The clock showing it had been three hours since I'd left Jesse. I couldn't taste anything in my mouth, and there seemed to be no damage to the car, so I chalked it up to a horrific nightmare. Concern overtook confusion rapidly, and I got out of the truck to find Jesse. It was still early hours, and the place looked even darker than before. But in the short time it took to reach the food truck, I could see far more people aimlessly wandering around, some on the benches and others congregating. Was there a late-night craving or something? Maybe the bars had just let out, and they wanted that drunken fast food experience. The rotting stench from earlier was gone, too. I could smell the succulent aroma of sizzling bacon, tender, crispy chicken, a medium-rare steak, and flavors that took me straight to being a kid again. My dad making a barbecue on a summer's evening, and playing Nintendo while I happily ate and kicked my feet. God, I wanted that feeling so badly. I couldn't help but feel hungry in that moment, captured by the memory. I totally forgot I was still walking towards Jesse. When I snapped out of it, I saw him. All of him. He was still eating. His jaw locked and ripping at the hinge. Muscles still pumping and the tongue lazily drooping over the side as gnarled hands shoved more cold meat into his gullet. The throat akin to that of a duck and just absorbing it into his frame, not even properly chewing. But the eyes were vacant and milky. The nostrils weren't moving and... His stomach was bloated. Whatever was pushing him to continue eating, it had taken his soul with it. This was autopilot. I looked around, wondering why nobody had stopped him or called for help, but when one of the women passed me, I noticed the similarities between her and the meat clown. Sallow skin, sunken eyes, gaunt features, all signs of pure malnutrition and a zombified state. What the hell was I in the middle of? The smell was overbearing in much the opposite way from earlier. Threatening to take me away into another beautiful memory and making my stomach squeeze and groan in protest. But I fought to keep focused. My shock, the only thing stopping me from crying at the sight of my dead friend. Something cut the air, though. It ripped through it and every person surrounding me perked their ears up and snapped their eyes to where Jesse sat. It sounded like someone stamping on a packet of sauce. It was squishy and followed by a distinct pop and a wet thud. Jesse's stomach had ripped open, his entrails scattering on the floor and in his lap. Immediately, the people around rushed to him, knocking me aside as they fought each other to grab at the plates, scraping or, in a truly barbaric fashion, pulling at his entrails and squeezing out pieces of digested meat to savor. I stumbled back until I bumped the counter of the truck, hitting the bell with a horrid ring. Snapping around, I saw the sign in clear English, Pav loves meat. Just like before, a pair of unseen hands rushed to attention as the smoke billowed and a smell so overpowering filled my lungs and made me cry. The violence ten feet away, a distant memory. Even the meat clown's distant, horrifying smile wasn't enough to sour my mood my craving for that memory food again. Nothing was. There was a small package in my hands. I didn't even realize I was holding it, not until I was back in my car. Sunlight will be creeping over the horizon soon. 
and I've no doubt people will ask where Jesse is, but I doubt they'll ever find him. The package is a small to-go box, wrapped in foil and still hot to the touch. The smell making me smile when it wafts my way. The emotion like looking at a puppy you're taking home after losing your former best friend. The issue I'm faced with now is that in addition to the horrific hunger I can feel building in my stomach, I can look around and see people going about their early morning routine. Each one of them with that same sign the meat clown is holding. All of them directed at me. Honk if you're hungry. I can't see the food truck, the people, Jesse, or anything else but the signs and the visions of better days with better food. I can only hear the honking. And I am so, so hungry. Sometimes it's only after a person passes away that we learn more about them, how they lived their life and what they did, like Madeline did after her father passed. And as we learn from author C.M. Scandreth, her father possessed a photo of a strange room that seems to defy the laws of physics. And now she's determined to finish her father's research on the room. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Joe Sheary, David Alt. And Andy Cresswell. So, when faced with a mystery that seems to have no logical solution, it's best to leave it alone, lest you get trapped in the Escher Room. It's an evocative name, Escher. Whenever I mention it to someone, I can almost see the cogs working as their head is filled with fantastic physics-defying landscapes, where concepts like up and down are subjective to the point of view. My father was also a physicist, like myself, and he enjoyed Escher's work immensely. He claimed to appreciate the artist's work purely for their mathematical elegance, but I would often catch him staring at the framed prints in his office like he was lost in them a curiously childlike expression on his face. I suspect that it wasn't the mathematical precision of the prince that entranced him. Instead, it was the allure of existing in a world where conventional, universal laws no longer applied. I think that's why Escher's work speaks to so many people. And I understand that longing. I can feel what my father flirted with in those moments, and more, because I have been to one of those places. I have seen the fabric of our reality stretched and warped beyond the bounds of relativity. I have seen the Escher Room. Like many other projects, the code name was unoriginal. Its official designation was Special Project 881, but it quickly earned the moniker Project Escher because of the nature of the research. And it was the right name at the right time. If my father hadn't been so obsessed with his prints, it's possible that I wouldn't be writing this tale now. But Dad's love of all things Escher had him pursue any information he could find on the great artist, 
and the name alone would have been irresistible to him. I wish I'd found out earlier that I'd been able to speak to him about all this, although that would have been difficult at the end. His death was almost a kindness. Alzheimer's disease had stealthily bereaved him of his razor intellect, as though his mind were an untempered carving knife, growing duller and duller as it soared through years of tough problems and knotty equations. After he left us, his office was a mess, much like the inside of his head. I tried to be the good daughter, but truth be told, I was never very good at the more domestic tasks, the cooking and the cleaning. I was, and always will be, his daughter. My mind just as bright and sharp, and just as easily distracted from mundane affairs. It took me a long time to go through all his papers, the random stacks of messily handwritten notes and his piles of photographs. His affair with Escher ran through them all like a tangled thread. Part of the tapestry eventually revealed when I uncovered a curious black and white photocopy of an image. My father's crabbed script on the back labelled it The Escher Room. It appeared to be a photograph of a massive irregular sphere hooked up to an extensive array of pipes, cables and ducts. The fine details of the surface were difficult to make out, but it seemed to be layered with oversized circuits, each solder point the size of my hand. More importantly, there was a hole in one side of the sphere, a doorway, and through that doorway was a structure, a room, which appeared to completely defy the known laws of physics. Of course, my first thought was the same as any rational person's. It was a hoax a poorly photoshopped image that had been photocopied too many times. But the date on the image, in my father's own hand, stated he acquired it in 1982, the year before I was born. I found only a few more cryptic notes on the subject after that date, then any research connected to the image stopped. His last note about it ended with a strangely personal and sombre passage. With the birth of Madeline, I no longer have time for such fancies. I must become a good father and put an end to this obsession. While I believe without a doubt that the Escher Room exists, it cannot be the focus of my life now. In fact, I am content to leave it largely a mystery. It is more poignant that way. It seemed unfair to me that my father had put aside his hobby just because I'd been born. I felt oddly hollow at this revelation as though my very existence had stolen some vital spark from his life, had condemned him to a life of banal child-rearing and robbed him of his true joy. Holding that piece of paper in my hand, I truly understood why he stared so wistfully at those impossible prints in his office, tracing lines of infinity with his deteriorating mind. In that moment, I decided I would find the room for him. I would uncover the origins of the photo, and put to rest his dream of finding the Escher Room. Being an academic gives you access to all kinds of information that isn't readily available to the public. With enough connections, palm greasing and pocket lining, you can find out all manner of things you shouldn't know, or at least enough clues to glimpse where to find the rest of the information. Having a security clearance helps too. So does being the grieving daughter of a very well-respected scientist. Initially, I found very little, 
The original photo didn't exist in any archive I could access, nor were there any obvious references to it by name or description. My father's scattered notes on the subject intimated that it had been a government project during the Second World War, one of many attempts at creating a superweapon with which to defeat the Nazis. It was in a margin note on an incomplete research paper from around that time that I finally discovered an oblique reference to it. We've made little progress compared to the boys over at Escher. Still, we have high hopes that we'll crack the secret of biochemical fuel production. It's only a matter of enough people and time. The author of that paper was a Dr. Howard Littleton, a biochemist. After taking a photo of the page under the dim light of the archive stacks, I put the file back in its box and returned it to its home on the sagging shelves. Whether Littleton had intended for this paper to be found, I did not know. But this was the first true lead I'd found in my investigation of the Escher Room. If he was still alive, I had to find him. He was dead, of course. It turned out that the man had been in his thirties during the war, and would have been over a hundred if he'd still been alive. But his only child still lived in England, just outside of Birmingham. Now an elderly woman with a cottage full of collectible porcelain plates and three yappy terriers. She was kind, but vague. In a quavering voice, she apologised that she didn't know much at all about her father's work, only that he'd been trying to synthesise oil from organic waste. An explosion near the end of the war had ended the experiments, and he'd taken up a comfortable tenure at Oxford, lecturing in biochemistry. Of the Escher Room, she knew nothing. She told me that she was sorry she couldn't be more help, and insistently pressed a tiny parcel of homemade shortbread into my hands. I awkwardly pocketed them. Thank you. It was a short walk from her house to my car, parked one street over. There weren't many people about, but as I made my way along the footpath, a man in a suit fell into step beside me. Excuse me, Ms. Dinsdale? I paused and turned to look at him warily. Yes? I'd like you to come with me, please. His voice held a certain weight and resonance, the kind that comes from years of saying such things to people and knowing the best ways to get them to respond. Are you police? He shook his head and offered an insincere smile. No, Miss Dinsdale. I'm in my five. Shit. Please, don't worry. You're not in any trouble. We just want to ask you some questions. About what? His smile was slightly more genuine this time. About why you are asking questions. I'd just like to reiterate, Miss Dinsdale, that you really aren't in any trouble. The office was small, sparse and impersonal, as if the agent didn't spend much time in it. While he hadn't threatened me in any way, and had been as polite as any other mid-level public servant, I had the distinct impression things might not be so pleasant if I didn't cooperate. The story spilled out from me in a babbling rush, from finding the photo to talking to Miss Littleton. As I spoke, I vaguely registered his expression changing from concern into something approaching relief. Right. So it's the room that you're interested in, then? Well, yes. Isn't that 
why we're having this conversation. What on earth else would I be after? He didn't answer. Instead, he unlocked a drawer in his desk, and after sorting through some innocuous items, took out a USB thumb drive. The password is relativity, and the contact details of the project director are inside, along with some pertinent information about the project. This wasn't how I had expected this to go. Why are you giving me this? He placed the thumb drive in front of me, then leaned back in his office chair and gave me a speculative look. They tried to recruit your father, you know. They baited the hook with just enough information to entice him, and were about ready to reel him in. I thought about that for a moment, picking up the drive and turning it over in my hand. So, why didn't they? He would have jumped at the chance. They don't like recruiting people with family, especially when they have young children. My own failure to procreate flared hot and shameful in my head and coloured my ears red. Then realisation prickled through my brain and replaced the shame with a surge of hope and something triumphant. Am I being offered a job? I suppose you are, Miss Dinsdale. Project 881, the files on the drive told me, had been started in December 1940 by a team of physicists, funded under the auspices of the British Armed Forces. Six bright young men with outstanding credentials were given virtually unlimited resources, charged to build a weapon which would bring Nazi Germany to its knees. Instead, they created something which shouldn't have been able to exist. A bunker was excavated under a swathe of privately owned farmland, and Project Escher began in earnest, its rapid progress born from an unusual synergy between the six scientists. They didn't seem to know what they were making at first. Their only goal was to push technology to its limits, to see what was over the horizon. Huge electromagnets were built, formed into rings, then doubled, tripled, and retained by more powerful magnetic fields. Without knowing what they were doing, they had built a sort of analogue precursor to modern particle colliders. But it was more than just that. Much more. They built circuit configurations that were 30 years ahead of the time, just to a massive scale. The Escher sphere from the picture was almost 50 metres in diameter, and veined with gold, copper and silver circuits, like some sort of semi-organic, quasi-futuristic fairground ride. But none of that explained the entirety of the puzzle. Even though its fathers were the cleverest men alive at the time, the sphere should not have been able to do the things it could do. It's hard to tell what was science and what was coincidence. The flavour and desperation of the age permeate the notes in a way that seldom happens now. Early on, one of the scientists had insisted on the location, on that particular stretch of land being used for the bunker, else he would leave the project. He claimed it was some sort of universal confluence point, or in more primitive terms, the conjunction of ancient druidic ley lines. If he was right, if it was his superstitious influence that tipped the balance, the scientists never found out. Because as soon as the sphere started to warp space and time inside itself, it was already too late. Initially, everyone was incredibly excited, exuberant as children. Inside the structure, you could walk upside down and shout down at your colleagues standing on the floor. Up and down no longer held any meaning, and in the focal point of the sphere, 
Objects phased and multiplied as they drifted through an unknown nexus of something. Cubicles and furniture were set up inside the Escher room to allow experiments that would plumb the depths of this new marvel of science. Two of the scientists even made permanent workspaces inside, claiming that inspiration came to them more easily inside the impossible structure. When they disappeared, it heralded the unravelling of Project Escher. One morning, the room abruptly began to suck more electricity. Then the interior fractured inexplicably into what I'd seen in the photograph, a sort of kaleidoscopic impossibility of furniture, walls, objects and doors, all at vertiginous angles to one another. The two men at their desks were nowhere to be seen. The room was immediately sealed off, and the remaining four scientists were pressed for an explanation, which they were unable to provide. In fact, the more they tried to understand the rupture inside the room, the less they seemed to comprehend. Their responses in the transcribed interviews became more and more simple, and less than a week later, the most capable of the four confessed that he couldn't even read his own notes anymore. Proximity to the sphere, it seemed, was eating away at their intellect. But removing them from the project didn't help. By the end of the war, the scientists who had created the Escherum were virtually vegetative, unable even to toilet themselves or speak in coherent sentences. Electricity was cut to the bunker, but the rupture refused to seal, and the sphere remained powered by an unknown source. A demolition crew was sent in to destroy the thing, but upon detonation of several tons of TNT, the explosive forces roared into the rift and vanished, the immense kinetic energy most likely distributed over an infinite number of parallel interstices. The sphere was, to all intents and purposes, indestructible, and anyone who spent any amount of time in proximity to it became a drooling imbecile. The contact number left on the flash drive put me in touch with a man named Edgar Hughes, who invited me to brunch with him at a cosy cafe in Stratford-upon-Avon. He was a short, nervous man with a greying, walrus moustache, and initially wouldn't talk about Project Escher at all. He made largely irrelevant small talk as we ate, also asking after my late father, who he seemed to have known fairly well. I was replete with poached eggs and awash with tea by the time he walked me to an ordinary-looking office building, where an elevator took us to the third floor. Through a swipe access security door was a short corridor, which ended in a very ordinary room containing a desk and a computer. He spread his hands with undisguised dramatic irony. Welcome to Project Escher. Other than a half-filled bookshelf, a water cooler, and another door to what I presumed was a bathroom, there was virtually nothing else in the room. Right. I'd expected a little more. Tapping a password into the computer, he graced me with a sardonic smile. Of course. So did I when I was first recruited. How many others are on the project? 
If you decide to stay, that will make um, two people. His stubby, clever fingers quickly clicked open a series of windows, displaying CCTV images in black and white. I caught my breath. In three of them, I recognized the rounded hulk of the Eschersphere, dangling severed pipes and cables like a vast organ that had been ripped from a giant's chest. Nobody is allowed near it still due to the uh, limiting effect it has on people's mental capabilities. I still monitor it for any sign of activity, but it hasn't noticeably changed in over 60 years. How does nobody know about this thing? Well, people do know about it, just not ordinary people. Britain turned to America for help after the end of the war, but after two of their preeminent physicists lost their minds studying it, and a nuclear detonation failed to destroy it, nobody wanted very much more to do with the thing. I blinked, staring at the images on the monitor. Pipes or no pipes, it was clearly largely still intact. They nuked it? He grinned, clicking through several folder trees on the screen. Well, they tried to nuke it. Here, watch for yourself. A grainy monochrome video clip filled the screen, showing the weirdly organic bulges of the sphere. On a sort of articulated steel tripod rested a complicated-looking device, which I assumed was a nuclear warhead. Watch carefully, or you'll miss it. As he spoke those words, there was a microsecond flash of light, then both the nuke and the tripod were gone. The sphere remained in place, squatting calm as a monstrous primitive egg inside the unscathed cavern that had been excavated for it. Jesus. It absorbed all the energy, didn't it? Just like it did with the TNT just after the war. As far as we can tell, that's exactly what it did, yes. I paused to ruminate, thinking about what I would have done. Why didn't they just bury it, pour tons of concrete over the thing and leave it to rot? Miss Dinsdale, this thing eats nuclear energy. Do you really think that the US or UK governments were going to just bury it and completely forget about it, not monitor it at all? No, I suppose not. There was an awkward silence as the man closed out of the video window and pulled up the CCTV images again. So why am I here? We're hoping you can offer a new perspective on the problem. There had been others before me, apparently. Bright young things, each one confident that they could tease out the Gordian mystery of the Esherum. Much like the pilgrims who had tried and failed to untangle that historical knot, most of my predecessors had given up and moved on to more productive pastures. Others had ignored Edgar's warning and sought out the room for themselves, quickly deteriorating after the sphere's influence rotted their minds into pulp. I don't tell the researchers where the room is anymore. That way, the temptation to visit it in person is removed, so you needn't ask. I thought about them a lot. Those whose minds had been eaten alive by the Escher Room. The work itself was tedious. Various pieces of monitoring equipment had been installed in the bunker that housed the sphere. Thermographs, spectrographs and seismographs. But nothing new had been added. So although the data spanned almost 60 years, 
What it measured hadn't changed since the day the devices were installed. I didn't ask who had braved proximity to the mind-eating sphere to place the equipment in the first place, but I strongly suspected whoever had performed that unenviable task hadn't been told about the sphere's influence. I learned that there had been a few unmanned attempts to enter the Escher Room, using the same sort of robotic platforms employed by bomb disposal squads. But any signal cut out the instant they crossed the boundary, and the robots couldn't be retrieved. Over one of our regular brunches, I asked Edgar if he thought the sphere was aware. You're not the first to speculate that. He was concentrating more on stirring honey into his tea than on what I was saying. It just seems so unlikely otherwise that it would instinctively know the precise instant to reorientate the rupture to absorb a nuclear blast. I suppose so. And more to the point, it could simply have redirected the blast upward or outward and destroyed everything around it. Why didn't it do that? That's a very good question. I had begun to suspect that Edgar was no longer particularly interested in solving the mystery of the Escher Room. The fires of his scientific inquiry for the sake of it had burned low over the years, damped by practicalities. His salary was very decent. He had a lot of free time in between the easy tasks of logging measurements and writing reports, and he was essentially his own boss. For any man pushing 60, it was an enviable job, a job that he had no real incentive to jeopardize. I think the sphere doesn't want the cavern destroyed. I think it still needs us to have access to it for some reason. Why do you say that? Well, the two attempts to destroy it were very different types of detonation. Wouldn't you expect some variation in the distribution of energies? In the first attempt, they just covered it with sticks of TNT and let rip, while the second was a controlled blast directed into the opening. Yet both resulted in the sphere somehow absorbing the respective blasts completely with no external damage. Yeah, not even a shockwave. He shook his head, placing the spoon primly beside his saucer. Anyway, this is all just speculation. We simply don't have enough data to draw any conclusions about the potential self-awareness of the sphere. I pushed away the teapot before he could reach for his customary top-up, a particularly English ultimatum. Well, Edgar, that's why we're going to gather more data. The military, it turned out, still funded Project Escher. Purchasing the equipment I needed wasn't difficult. I just had to complete several reams of paperwork, then curb my impatience while I waited for the drones to arrive. Demonstrating one of the quadcopters to Edgar at the local park, I had to smile. He whooped and cheered like a schoolboy as I flew the little aircraft in a dangerously close loop around the white pillars of a rugby goalpost. He was becoming engaged again, despite his initial protests and doubts. Do you think the signal will be able to penetrate the sphere's interior? I carefully brought the drone back down and into a muddy landing. I'm not certain, but even if it doesn't, at the very least it might provide us with some high-quality images from the entrance. The four remote quadcopters were boxed up and sent off. They would be delivered to a brave, or more likely poorly aware intermediary, who would take them to the unknown stretch of farmland where the Escher Sphere held residence. I knew there would be lag, 
piloting the devices through remote mobile data, but I didn't have any other choice considering the restrictions I was working under. I lost the first drone immediately, flying it too far and too fast. After a few wonderful, confusing seconds of sharp colour images, it crossed the invisible threshold of the sphere's electromagnetic influence. Well, guess that proves it blocks cell signals. Once I'd positioned the next quadcopter near the sphere's aperture, I set it to hover and record until the low battery warning prompted it to return to its dock. At least we'd have some quality digital data to work with now, not just old-school analogue CCTV footage. The video physically hurt to look at it. I gave up after ten minutes due to eye strain. It was like staring into the world's most mathematically complex kaleidoscope. Coffee and painkillers helped, but not enough to give me more than another 20 minutes before the telltale rainbow flashes of a migraine occlusion began to dance across my field of vision. There had to be a better way to analyse the images, but until I thought of something, I'd better stock up on pharmaceuticals. After a few painful viewings, I had at least identified several recurring markers inside the room. An old desk, a collection of chairs, some shelves filled with bottles, and a workbench littered with papers and books. The rupture's bizarre effect on the sphere's interior meant that those objects were doubled and trebled, showing me views from different angles simultaneously. The markers also changed abruptly between recordings. The chairs moved and came back huddled in a different arrangement. The workbench gained or lost bits of equipment, and new objects constantly appeared and vanished from the room. It was as though it was in a constant state of flux, but what the cause of that state was, I could only guess. As I spent another blindingly unproductive session going through the download video logs, I finally saw something that caused my adrenaline to spike so sharply it set my heart pounding. Seated at one of the desks in the room was a man. At first, I thought he was a mannequin, so stiff was his posture. But when I zoomed in on that area of the recording, I realised he was most certainly alive, and alive in a particularly horrific manner. His features were a flickering mess of contorted facial expressions. Changing so rapidly was as though someone was erratically jabbing at the fast-forward option on my playback controls. Two minutes into the footage, his face vibrated and smeared into a white blur, then abruptly stilled, bloating and decomposing into that of a sagging corpse. His body remained bolt upright in its chair, even as his limbs began to wither. And for the barest fraction of a second, the slackening lines of that face resembled my father's just before he died. His eyes empty, his wits fled. Once disbelief receded and the shock set in fully, my stomach clenched and I vomited wretchedly into the waste bin beside the desk. I showed Edgar stills from the footage. That was one of the original scientists lost inside the sphere. I suppose we at least know what happened to him now. The sphere is in temporal flux then, not just spatial flux. It's nice to have that confirmed. He sounded neither convinced nor happy about my discovery. The still image of the war-era scientist's Richter screaming in his paradoxical prison disturbed me greatly, so I closed the picture and turned away from the screen. 
I need to buy a better drone. An autonomous one that can fly into the sphere and fly out again without our control. I wasn't aware those existed. They do, and they're expensive. But I think the cost is justified, considering what we just witnessed here. Edgar looked pensive. You think you can save him, don't you? My eyes ached from staring into the nightmarish collision of colours and shapes. I ground my knuckles into my temples and nodded. If the room is in temporal flux, then it's possible we might be able to get a message to those lost inside it. Perhaps prevent this from happening, or even bring them through into our time. I don't mean to rain on your parade, but this is all very far-fetched. Are you sure it wouldn't be better suited for some work of speculative science fiction? Edgar, you've spent 30 years babysitting a phenomenon that can fracture known reality. And you think this is bordering on science fiction? He gave me a wan smile. I suppose familiarity breeds contempt. Where the drone had come from, I wasn't going to ask. But I strongly suspected it was military hardware, probably American. Your discoveries seem to have renewed interest in the project. I began unboxing the device to configure it. Though it was an incredibly sophisticated machine, I had no idea how its sensors would interpret the shifting impossibilities inside the sphere. To try and compensate for this, one of my original drones was set as its beacon, with a bright orange ball suspended underneath it as it hovered in front of the aperture. The new primary drone was set to attempt a short circular flight path inside the sphere, then return to the aperture. We need to see if it works before we try to map the entire interior. I didn't add that the possibility of losing several hundred thousand dollars of equipment in a few minutes made me distinctly nervous. But as I headed to the office the following morning to begin my final preparations, a phone call interrupted me two blocks from my destination. An official, expressionless male voice on the other end informed me that my presence was no longer required on Project Escher and that I would be debriefed after the drone run had been completed. Thank you. The military had taken over operations. Breakfast at the cafe was tasteless. Alternating waves of indignation and rage washed over me, barely eroding my bitter disappointment. I should have known that the moment we'd had a real breakthrough, the military would take charge again. It had been so utterly idiotic of me to assume that our autonomy as researchers would stay intact, and I hated feeling stupid. Edgar didn't turn up for his usual Tuesday special, and I wasn't sure if I was upset or relieved at not being able to speculate about it with him over crumpets and marmalade. In a way, that would have made it more real. And I wasn't sure I could handle him telling me it was probably all for the best, as I strongly suspected he might. I went back to my flat and tried a few distraction techniques. I hadn't watched daytime TV for a long time, and the banality of it increased my impatience rather than assuaging it. Scrolling through social media had never been my thing, but I managed to lose myself down an internet rabbit hole long enough to stop my knees jittering. When my phone screen finally flashed up an unknown caller, I answered even before the ringtone kicked in. Madeline speaking. 
Dinsdale. We need you to come down to our office immediately for debriefing. On my way. His face a shade more grim than last time. The agent ushered me to a seat in a small boardroom, where a wall-mounted television displayed a paused video window. There was an incident today, during the testing of the drone. His voice was as mild as his choice of words. Incident is such a convenient, innocuous word, but it's been so overused it's come full circle. It's become a euphemism for something horrible. My internal voice was screaming at him to get the hell on with it and play the video, but I forced a pleasant smile and nodded amiably. The video has some content that you may find disturbing, but it's important that you view it. None of us can fully explain what happened, and we're hoping that you can help us understand the events that have transpired. Yes, fine. I tried not to make it sound like I was forcing the words through my teeth. As the video began, it showed Edgar seated in front of a computer, ringed by half a dozen uniformed military staff. He gave a detailed explanation of my discoveries regarding the room, then blithely passed off the drone experiment as his own innovation, greeted with murmured approval from the gathered observers. He'd sold me out. Fists white-knuckled under the table, I listened to him prattle self-importantly as the two drones on his monitor deployed smoothly, heading for the aperture. When he announced that the primary drone had crossed the threshold, the gathered personnel craned their necks to watch the incoming footage from the beacon drone. Then, all hell broke loose. Audio abruptly cut out, and a stark black box appeared over a portion of the video which showed Edgar's screen, clearly edited into the video after the fact. The little man stiffened in his chair, then his head lolled over the backrest, his face slack, nerveless, only the whites of his eyes showing. Around him, the uniformed men and women collapsed where they stood, like a ring of felled trees. Two of them convulsed with seizures, white froth bubbling alarmingly from their lips stretched tight over clenched jaws. I was glad there was no sound. The video ended with a still frame of the macabre scene. No movement now, with the slowly growing pools of urine spreading beneath the bodies on the polished floor. They're not dead, but they are all vegetative. What happened to the drone? What did the beacon drone see? We're not sure. The drone's link was hijacked by another signal, which began broadcasting some sort of pulsed audio and video signal. He licked his lips eyes darting nervously at the TV screen, which he turned off. Now he almost looked like a real person. As far as we can tell, it was coded to do something to the human central nervous system. Like a sort of primitive audiovisual virus? Yes. The implications of that alone were staggering, but I tried to put them aside. There was a more pressing issue here. The footage from the primary drone. As though anticipating my next question, the agent brought up another video. One of the CCTV feeds from the interior of the Sphere's bunker. It took me a long moment to recognise exactly what was being shown, because I'd never seen it without the Sphere dominating most of the space. 
The sphere vanished shortly after that coded signal was sent. Surely I hadn't heard him correctly. I was losing my wits. What? It vanished, Miss Dinsdale. And it hasn't been seen since. I couldn't offer them much in the way of an explanation. Just a list of speculative scenarios based on the limited information they've given me. The powers that be seem happy enough to place the blame squarely on the shoulders of the project director. And conveniently, of course, he's currently languishing on life support in a private facility. The most plausible scenario, or at least the one that everyone was most comfortable accepting, was that the drone's electronic emissions had somehow destabilized the rupture, and the resulting temporal instability had caused the sphere to implode. The broadcasted signal, the one that had rendered the direct observers into mindless husks, was blamed on the massive seismic and gravitational fluctuations caused by the disappearance of the sphere. And the subsequent recording has been destroyed, since it had caused cerebral deterioration in anyone who had been foolish enough to view it. But even though that's what science suggests, some part of me refuses to accept that outcome. Coiled in my gut is a knot of intuition. An unfamiliar, superstitious inner voice screams a different scenario, tells me the Escherum isn't gone, that instead it has somehow transcended the limits of our reality and is now free to roam wherever its unfathomable desires command it to go. I think that when the drone entered the room, it didn't trigger an instability at all. Instead, the sphere tried to connect with it, just as it had done with the minds of the original scientists. And then it attempted to flay it of all of its knowledge. But this time, instead of the contents of a few limited human brains, it discovered technology. A level of technology 70 years more advanced than its own, and it immediately integrated the device into itself, giving the sphere access not only to the drone's sophisticated software and hardware, but knowledge of our cellular and Wi-Fi networks. And I think, no, I know that the sphere knew exactly what it was broadcasting when it lobotomized Edgar and his cronies. I'd be cautious of screens if I were you, Having written out my account of the Escher Room, I intend to destroy my electronic devices and never touch another as long as I live. Any notes I make will be in longhand, just like my father taught me. I'm still his daughter. Because the Escher Room is still out there, somewhere, somewhere, connected to the myriad signals covering our planet. And when it finds a mind it thinks is a suitable candidate for its unfathomable purpose, it won't hesitate for a second and it will ream you of everything that makes you who you are. I've seen too many empty faces, intellectual oblivion behind their eyes where precious consciousness once lived. I don't want to see any more.
It goes without saying that we here at the podcast enjoy providing sleepless nights. But in real life, it can be annoying and detrimental to one's health when you try to get some sleep, but you can't because of strange noises. And in this tale, shared with us by author S.E. Adams, we meet a woman struggling to sleep with anxieties and those maddening, awful, nocturnal sounds. Performing this tale is Mick Wingert. So seek help if you need it, and try to get some sleep, despite hearing the whispers. Sighing to herself, Kyra slipped back under the covers. It was warmer. It was comfort once more. It was just better. She took a deep, chilled breath through her nose, letting it out through her mouth. Her therapist would have been proud of her control just then. As her eyes slid closed, the warmth began to settle over her, sending her drifting again. So she almost missed the skitter-slither noise coming from her right. Eyes popping open again, Kyra rolled back fast to face down whatever the hell was waiting for her. But she only saw black, and her clock radio mocking her. 10.58. Better get your shit together, honey. That noise again. This time overhead. Kyra's hand jerked outward to fumble for the light, and she barely managed to keep from knocking the lamp over before she found the switch. Ignoring her heart in her throat as light flooded the room, she looked left, right, center, nothing. No living blobs of ink. Nothing that would make a skitter slither. What in the hell could? Nothing. That was the answer. Nothing. Letting out a breath she hadn't realized she was holding, Kyra slipped further under her covers. Now it was about that innate sense of safety that only children knew you got from such things. She reached out again, turning off the light. She was being crazy. Crazy like Jackie. It did run in the family, after all. She'd call her therapist in the morning, confess all. She'd been reassured over and over again that she hadn't shown the signs. But what did that really mean? Nothing. The noise once more. The skitter-slither. Kyra closed her eyes tight against it, closed her eyes tight. She brought the covers up to her chin and told herself it was the house, because it was. She could hear the other noises the house made, and just because she'd never heard a fucking thing like that the entire time she'd grown up there didn't mean it couldn't happen. It was an evolution of noises, that was all. She told herself over and over again that she was crazy, that she was hearing things. She told herself that as the skitter slither got closer overhead, from the ceiling to the wall above her headboard. She kept telling herself that when the sounds of vicious oozing turned to a sort of snap-cracking, like bone being shattered or forming. Kyra told herself it was all in her head, and she'd lost her damned mind. Right until she felt ten burning cold fingers stab into her skull and the pain was too great to scream, and it was all so much worse than she could have realized. Her eyes opened wide against the agony coursing through her entire being. Kyra found herself staring into a familiar, faceless form. It was her own, but her shadow. 
Her shadow had her fingers in Kyra's skull, and there was no blood, just pain and so much cold. The shadow Kyra dug her fingers in, and Kyra cried out as she felt those fingers brush against her brain. The shadow wrenched her fingers to the right, and Kyra wished she could have fallen into unconsciousness just then. It wasn't to be. First, she heard the whispers. They were indistinct, but they felt primal. They filled Kyra with a fear that was far beyond the pain she now felt. Then she saw new things, the worst things, and they came to her mind so fast, so vivid, so easy. Kyra watching through Jake through window. He was with another girl, holding her hand, laughing, happy, falling in love. A perfect love she'd never touch. Kyra again, but on the street now, broken and alone, starved and ignored, lost. Not Jackie in the hospital, but Kyra, wrapped up tight in a straitjacket, screaming and gibbering and raging into the abyss of a cell somewhere, and the abyss wasn't about to answer back. Somewhere Jackie is laughing. So much more, too. Waking up tomorrow only to find her parents murdered in their beds because of something unforgivable she did. Going to her interview tomorrow only to be pulled over by police and arrested. Or so much worse. So many things. Too many things. Eventually, she realized she was screaming. And had been screaming for some time now. And somehow no one was coming for her. Kyra herself could barely hear it over those primal whispers in her ear that she couldn't understand, but somehow could. They were telling her she was right, that all was unsafe, that failure, pain, and death were inevitable. Then she had stopped screaming, and it took another moment to realize that was a form of acceptance. Kyra stared into her shadow self, and they understood each other. The whispers had brought truth, terrifying as it was. The fingers were removed from her skull, but the terrible images didn't stop. Kyra didn't try to stop them. She saw Robbie, the family dog, being hit by a car. There was blood and fur and exposed bone gleaming white in the sun. This was perfectly possible. The dog got out of the yard constantly. With all these images came the whispers, because they were with her now. They'd always be with her. Kyra's shadow self crawled back up the wall, and as she did, the crackling began again. She lost her shape, returning to the amorphous blob she had come to Kyra as. Kyra watched her new friend return to the window and disappear through the tiny cracks of the old window pane. She didn't notice cold tears streaming down her face. She wouldn't have cared. She slid back under the covers and stared into the ceiling. There would be no sleep tonight. There was too much to contemplate. Like how Jake could die, for example. Or what would happen when Jackie got out of the hospital and came to stay at the house. Or the near certainty that she would not be going to that interview tomorrow as she was nowhere near good enough for such jobs. So much to think about. So many whispers to listen to. No time for sleep.
When you start a new job and do it well, it can lead to advancement and better assignments. The boss can start to take notice, and so can your co-workers. And in this tale, shared with us by author Kelly Trapnell, it's a rookie reporter who finds herself getting attention from the other reporters, only they think she might be getting a little too much attention. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Dan Zapula, and Kyle Akers. So learn to deal with professional jealousy if you're going to survive when you're asked out for drinks down at The Fig. I walked up to the bar where Lucas had said to meet him, double-checking the location on my phone. This place looked beat to hell, run down, hardly the Lux cocktail bar my editor had mentioned in our meeting earlier that day. Maybe the team was hazing me? I was still pretty new on the bar beat, and I wouldn't put it past them. My company's culture could get a little frat-like at times. I was the first woman on their team of six reporters. Maybe some of them were jealous of my acceleration, the somewhat inscrutable metric for success that our CEO had put into place last quarter. Whatever the magic formula was, though, I had cracked it with my first exclusive. My coverage of a new Soho Queer Bar's take on a Corpse Reviver number 2 that was, in its own right, revolutionary. The secret ingredient was reduced rum cotton candy stacked high atop the tiki mug the drink was served in. The article had gone viral only three hours after the piece had posted to the site. Lucky for me, I was dating the owner, a semi-famous mixologist renowned for her innovative drink presentation, and Sasha had been kind enough to let me write about her. We hadn't been dating long, only about a week or so, but her pull was strong on me. Every moment spent gone from her was a dull ache in my chest, a burning lower. So being here, at this bar, where I was certain I was about to get punked by my male co-workers, on a Monday, no less, the only day that Sasha's bar was closed, I felt like a sucker. But, as I looked at the bar's faded sign again, it was called The Fig, something crawled through me. Danger? No, it couldn't be. I was a bad bitch. Tall. Thick. Anybody with the idea that I might be easy pickings was quickly dispatched with a scowl and a straightening of my shoulders. Whatever these boys had in store for me wasn't enough to scare me. So then, what was this feeling? Interest? The place, as dilapidated as it seemed on first glance, was alluring in its way. It was situated at the crux of a weird intersection, bounded on either side by small streets that ran alongside three bigger, much busier thoroughfares to create a chaotic clump of five streets. Music poured down from a small, empty rooftop that was overgrown with lush plants and flowers. Along one of the streets, the bar had no windows, just a solid concrete wall that had been decorated with a huge mural of some 
strange bug. It looked like a bee or a beetle, but with a thin, long head and translucent wings shaped like those of a butterfly. A thin, whip-like appendage that was almost twice the length of the bug itself extruded from its abdomen, right in the place where a stinger might be. The front of the bar looked out onto the corner of the intersection, at the meeting point of the two roads. The one window in the front of the bar held a single neon sign that read, Psychic, in cursive yellow and red. Patterned lace curtains were draped behind it, making it hard to see into the bar. I stepped up to the door, and the same strange feeling coursed through me again, like when I had touched the bare outlet in my aunt's guest bathroom as a child. Involuntarily, I stopped dead. Weird. I had to push myself forward on the bar's threshold. Lifting my hand to the doorknob felt like moving my arm through thick molasses. Looking at the phone screen, I saw it was a few minutes before 7 p.m., and the message was from her, from Sasha. Babe, have fun at the bar. (laughs) Hurry back to me. I'm waiting. I smiled at the text, then shook my head. What was I doing? I just needed to get this over with so I could get over to Sasha's. Ignoring the feeling of wrongness prickling my skin, I put my hand on the doorknob, turned it, and stepped into the bar. Inside the bar, it was a garish, dingy pink, like the inside of a mouth, some mucous membrane. Baroque decor, a limp-looking beige silk sofa sagged in one corner. In another, a set of mismatched embroidered armchairs gathered around a spindly iron coffee table, painted white and flaking. A long, unused fireplace carved from gray marble and festooned with cherubs and angel faces displayed an iron rack full of half-lit, melted pillar candles. It was an oddly feminine place for Lucas's crew to choose for a drink with the bros. He and the rest of his cohorts had already arrived. They were sitting at the bar, hunched over drinks, their black-suited backs to me. Even the bar itself was overly frilly, draped in beads and lace, and glowing a pale peach, thanks to some recessed lighting within the bar itself. The color was nearly the same shade as the glittery highlighter Sasha brushed across her high cheekbones every morning. I rolled my eyes and strode up to the bar, then clapped Lucas on the back. He was easily distinguished by the premature gray in his dark undercut. He spun around. You made it. He grinned stupidly. Looked like the group had cut out a bit early to make it here with enough time to fully cash in on the happy hour specials, which ran until eight. Yep. How's things? You wanted to meet? (laughs) One of the others, Brad or something, we hadn't really met yet, laughed aloud at a joke the bartender had made. The rest of the guys leered at me, in various states of drunk. Sit down. I sat on the empty stool next to him, but the unsettling feeling from before hadn't faded. I had already assessed the room. Exits to the back right, and the way I'd come, a decrepit set of iron stairs that twirled up to the rooftop deck I'd seen from the street. 
Club mixes of 80s pop lilted from the speakers in the other corners. There were a few other patrons in the bar that I could see, coupled off by the front window in a small clump by the sofa. The air smelled sickly, hung thick beneath the gaudy chandelier lighting. It tasted like fermented peaches, like farmhouse cider, or a funky saison. Sasha and I were both into craft beer and small batch brewing. Before I could say anything, Lucas had motioned to the bartender, who was presenting me with an acid green cocktail. Uh, thanks. I was wary, but trying to be cool. Everyone was acting a little strange. I had been sure they'd have jumped on me right away with the banter, but they were all acting pretty chill, if a bit loopy. Maybe the invitation had been genuine after all, and this was just how they partied. Lucas smiled as he patted me on the shoulder. I noticed his features were a little droopy. Just how long had they been here? Not always that we get a noob with acceleration. At this, the other guys turned and started to pay attention. Oh, yeah. Not wanting to play it down. Had I been with my girlfriends, I would have. Instead, tonight, I straightened up. Well, I know what I'm doing, so... The oldest guy in the group, besides Lucas, snorted. His name was Todd, and he'd been with the company for three years now. Long for this business. Everyone knew that he was struggling with acceleration. You don't know shit. His words were rude, but his tone was good-natured enough. None of us do. Even the CEO Roderick has no idea what the public wants. It's all this PC culture ruining everything. Can't even have an opinion on something anymore. I frowned. Of course, he was one of those. Todd downed his drink, signaled for another. Another worker, Aaron, shook his head at Todd's assertion. Shut up, man. Don't you realize that makes you sound like an asshole? He looked at me, and I blinked. His face seemed blurry. Or, no, it seemed to be sagging. I smiled, trying not to stare. He kept talking. The girl clearly knows what she's doing. His lips somehow curling as the rest of his face wilted. I mean, sleeping with your sources is bound to help you get deep inside of the story. Brad laughed again, a guffaw that sounded almost cartoonish. <laughs> Have you seen her girl? Not really the bearing type, but damn, she is fun to look at. Lucas waggled his eyebrows at me. Yeah, thanks for the pictures, too. Damn Chai's photography skills, I thought. Our publication was known for its amazing photos. Chai, our lead photographer, was truly gifted, which meant that she'd captured Sasha behind the bar at just the right moment. Her cheeks flushed with heat, her golden eyes focused, perfectly lit, as she seared an orange rind with a newly struck match. Tiny beads of sweat like dew at her brow and collarbone. I guess for these guys, it helped that she liked to wear low-cut dresses while she worked. 
In the feature image for my piece, Sasha had looked like fucking Tessa Thompson. The thought of Sasha, of that picture, sent me back to the text she had sent not ten minutes ago. <laughs> Hurry back to me. I'm waiting. The guys were cheering and high-fiving each other, practically drooling. This was nonsense. I took a sip of my drink and winced. The lime green cocktail tasted bitter and reeked of ethanol. What's in this? But the bartender had their back to me and didn't respond. I could barely make out their features in the mercury-stained mirror that hung above the dusty bottles of liquor behind the bar. Hey, how'd you end up with a babe like that anyway? You're just a dyke. I whipped around, ready to slap him. But then I saw his face. His features were totally distorted, almost as though his flesh were melting, like the wax of the candles in the fireplace. Like Aaron's face. But worse. Far worse. The pink sockets of his eyes grew as his bottom eyelids sagged. His eyeballs, horrifyingly spherical, jostling as the space they occupied shifted. I gasped and jumped back, toppled over. I thought I was going to fall off the bar stool, but it came with me, stuck to me by some beige, creeping slime. I yelped and pulled myself from the chair, slapping at the gunk on my pantsuit. A faint hissing noise came from the caustic goop. <laughs> the guys were jeering, making fun of my start and cackling to themselves about the fall. I couldn't bear to look closely at them. I couldn't bear to see Lucas's face again. Not like that, all dripping and disfigured. He was a dick, but he was still a person. At least, I hoped so. I took my phone from my pocket, checked the time. 11.55 p.m. How could it be so late? I dimmed the screen, pushed the button to illuminate it again, and the time was the same. But now there was a series of messages from Sasha as well. 8.01 p.m. How's it going? 9.10 p.m. Babe? 9.10 p.m. Do you think you'll come over tonight? 9.15 p.m. I hope they're being nice to you. 10.45 p.m. Ro, are you okay? Starting to worry. 11.32 p.m. Ro, seriously, this isn't funny. Fuck! How had so much time passed? Did Lucas fucking roofie me? No, I thought. No, I had been drugged at a club before. This wasn't how it felt. A moaning sound came from the bar, and I snapped my head up, looking dead on at the bartender, who had no discernible face. I could see now. Just a blank oval of skin tone painted on like nail polish. I watched in horror as the face color melted away to reveal a perfectly polished, nearly opaline skull. Only the skull was no longer a skull at all. Not really, but instead a shined white sphere, growing ever smaller as the flesh color drained from its surface. 
Beneath, the body writhed and jerked as the last spasms of life left the bartender, and great hunks of muscle flopped down from their arms onto the floor, which, I noticed then, was crawling with the same slime that had stuck me to the chair. I wanted to run, but I was frozen in place by the spectacle before me. The bartender had become more of a skeleton than anything. But a strange scream erupted from the body as its white limbs began to shorten and curl. I looked around at the other patrons of the bar. Then, Lucas and his crew were all melting in a similar fashion. Had they given me acid? But no, I could hear them all, screaming, set to the overly positive backbeat of Tiffany and the B-52s. The bartender had become a kind of grotesque, ultra-foo-foo coat rack made of bone. Lucas, Todd, Brad, and Aaron seemed to be melding together, their flesh melting onto the barstools where they sat in such a way that they began to resemble an ornate, blood-red chaise lounge. They wailed together, and Lucas reached out for me. I screamed and remembered myself. I looked down. My legs were throbbing with the beige slime, which stretched almost all the way over my knees. Fuck! No way in hell I was going to become part of some shitty Williamsburg dive bar. Fuck that. I ran, or tried to run, for the door. I was moving. That was good. But the most I could manage was a determined kind of lurch. I trudged forward, my heart beating hard in my ears as I focused on the George Michael lyrics pouring from the bar speakers. I willed myself to move, to keep moving, to never stop, even as I neared the door. My phone rang in my hand. Sasha. But I couldn't answer. I had to focus. The couple at the table near the window was melting also, their shared skin flowing together like spilled shades of paint over the wire table and white wicker chairs. I looked away. The floor of the bar bucked then, as if it knew I was trying to escape, and I crumpled to the ground. The slime overtook me, moving much faster than it had before. With a yell, I pushed myself up to my feet and ripped my torso away from the hungry slime. In the corner of my eye, the couple at the table, or the chrysalis-like shape they had morphed into, bubbled up once. I stared transfixed, even as I worked toward the door. The chrysalis throbbed again, then shook violently. Then it cracked open with a sick noise of breaking bone. But what emerged from the chrysalis was almost too monstrous to describe. A giant wasp, or something like a wasp, black and shiny and buzzing, still new and dripping with whatever amniotic fluid it had emerged from. Was it the couple's blood? I gagged, but still I pushed toward the door. It didn't seem like the wasp could fly yet, because it crawled on almost human arms, up the wall of the bar and onto the ceiling, hanging upside down between me and the way out. I could barely make out the couple's faces, stretched and distorted, in the wasp's wings, mouths still working in distress, even as they melted slowly into the hideous insect. 
A long, black, whip-like stinger grew out of its abdomen, a near-perfect echo of the mural I had seen earlier outside. I screamed again, this time more out of desperation than anything. I had more to do before I died. I had more stories to tell. I had Sasha, sure, but I wasn't certain that we were meant to be anything real yet. I wasn't done loving her, and I wasn't done meeting people. I had worked harder than this, damn it. I deserved better than to be yet another woman who had gone out for drinks with male colleagues and had never come back. The wasp crawled closer to the door, and the beige slime crept over my arms and shoulders, nearing the tips of my fingers. I felt the structure of my face start to shift as I lunged for the door. My hand closed around the doorknob just as the wasp descended. I closed my eyes and threw my whole weight forward into the door. A terrible buzzing filled my head, and I hit pavement. For a moment, I thought I was dead. Surely eaten by the bar, by the wasp. Gone forever. Just another casualty who'd be missed, but eventually forgotten. But I was still alive, and whole, despite the state of my outfit, which was pocked with holes all over, as though I'd been living in a closet full of moths for the last five years. But the slime was gone. My phone was in my hand. Breathing hard, I checked the time. 5.20 a.m. I laughed aloud at my luck, at my existence, and the few drunk stragglers on the street jumped, looking at me funny. I turned back to look at the bar. All of the lights were off, save for the neon psychic sign glinting yellow and red in the front window. The sky had started to lighten, and as I stared into the window, wondering if what I'd been through, if what had happened to Lucas and everyone else in the bar had been real, I saw the dark shape of a giant insect crawl across the window. It paused there, as if regarding me, and then crawled back into the shadows of the fig. A shiver ran through me. I felt drunk and wobbly. I let out a huge breath, and then I took out my phone to text Sasha. She was never going to believe me. As I typed, I noticed something strange. My thumb was changing. Little bumps appeared, and then they grew into small, sharp points. It wasn't painful, not really, but it was startling, and I pocketed my phone looked closer at my hands. The bumps were all over my hands and forearms, bubbling up and then hardening into hair-thin points. If I didn't look too closely, I could almost imagine that they were hair. And then the growing stopped. I touched one of the prickles gingerly and pulled back. <laughs> they were sharp, all right and they covered my arms from the elbow to the back of my knuckles and thumbs. The door to the bar swung open, and a gust of rank-smelling, rotten air whooshed out towards me. I covered my face with my arms and closed my eyes. When I heard the door slam and the wind stopped, I looked up. The bar was closed. Nothing had changed. 
I looked down at my arms. A fine beige dust coated the new spines on my forearms. I tried brushing it off. Once, twice, and then frantically. But it didn't budge. I looked at the fig, at the wasp mural on the wall. And then I remembered something I'd learned back in middle school science class. Mutualism. How some species depend on each other in particular ways. I hadn't made it out. Not really. I had, but not of my own volition. This was how it spread. I wasn't a survivor. I was a pollinator. In our final tale, we meet a group of kids doing what kids do, running around outside, exploring the forests and places where imagination and adventure can take hold. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, the kids venture to a nearby spot, the one they've been warned to stay away from, and it's all fun and games until night falls. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Nicole Doolin, and Mike Delgadio. So for once in your life, won't you listen to the warnings, especially if you're told to stay away from the sand quarry? The day started like any other. My two older cousins and I woke up at the crack of dawn, got dressed, ate, made our lunches, and filled our backpacks with snacks. Meanwhile, my aunt sat on the couch watching reruns and occasionally yelling at us to hurry up. Would she have acted differently if she'd known what was going to happen? As we opened the front door, she looked at us for the first time all morning and spoke. I don't want to hear or see any of you until supper, is that clear? That was how she acted every time I visited in the years following her divorce. She'd shoo us out as soon as we were fed. I suppose she wanted some quiet time to recover from dealing with an extra kid, yet I was only staying for a couple of weeks. Was I really that disruptive? Heck, if anyone needed alone time, it was me. As an only child, it was hard for me to adjust to the constant presence of two rowdy preteen boys. It didn't help that Parker and Joshua clearly had it in for me, partly because I was a bit younger than them, but mainly because I was a girl. At 11 and 9, they were old enough to know better than to hate someone strictly based on the possibility of cooties, but they showed their lack of maturity in the chauvinistic way they interacted with me. To make matters worse, our parents insisted we do everything together. Looking back, I can see why they were a bit resentful of me. They were essentially my unpaid babysitters, and though I considered myself an equal, they saw me as a burden. 
We started our day by playing in the forest outside my aunt's hilltop house. By we, I mean my cousins. Parker, the older of the two, decided they'd play superheroes. Joshua was the villain and he was the hero. Me? Oh, I was told I'd be the hapless traffic cop that had to sit back and watch the scene unfold. Not that I wanted to be the damsel in distress, but I would have taken any role more involved than a mute cop forced to stay on the sidelines. After a while, the boys decided to change things up and play adventuring archaeologists instead. This time, Parker was the evil Nazi spy, Joshua was the archaeologist, and I was the servant girl carrying their backpacks around while they swung from a tree and fought with twigs. I begged and whined for them to let me join, but Peter huffed and brushed me off, claiming girls couldn't fight. His brother stood behind him in silence. I could have been a little tattletale. I could have run back into the house and told my aunt all about how her sons wouldn't let me play, but I'd tried that once before, and it only made matters worse. My aunt cursed at Parker for half an hour, using a broader range of colorful language than an enraged thesaurus. From a hiding spot at the top of the stairs, I watched in horror as her hand slammed against his face with unrestrained force. For the rest of that visit, Parker wore a blue baseball cap to hide the mark she left on him. I vowed never to tell on him again, no matter how badly he bullied me. I didn't want him getting hit, and wouldn't risk further damage to the status quo. There was already enough tension between us. The sun cycled overhead as I lamented the fact that I was, yet again, forced to sit on the sidelines while my cousins had the time of their lives. I sighed and ate the homemade cookies my aunt had baked us the night before. I'd lost track of what games the boys were playing at that point, but it barely mattered. Whatever they were doing, I knew my role would be the same. Bored out of my wits. I absentmindedly traced circles on the ground. It was then that my thoughts shifted to the sand quarry. Despite being warned multiple times of its dangers, my cousins and I often played there. Though not everyone agreed on why it was unsafe. Locals claimed rainwater would collect at the bottom after a storm. My parents worried about old construction equipment. My aunt said it was easy to lose your footing and slip. They all agreed on one thing. Never, ever go to the sand quarry at night. Fortunately, it was the afternoon, so we had plenty of time to play before nightfall. Going to the sand quarry was the only suggestion I could make that wouldn't be met with contempt. The wide open space meant I could distance myself from the boys without getting lost, and they could go ahead and keep ignoring me like always. It was a win-win scenario. I climbed onto a boulder to get Parker and Joshua's attention, brought my hands to the sides of my mouth. Let's go to the quarry. Parker and Joshua stopped in their tracks looked at one another, and then nodded in unison. Joshua spoke. I was going to say that. Then, of course, Peter chimed in. Yeah, we were about to go. I jumped off the boulder and started scaling down the hillside. To get to the quarry, we had to go all the way down and walk about half an hour through a field of cotton. I was a chubby child, and I struggled to keep up with my two cousins. As we made our way through the field, I tripped on some loose shoelaces and fell in the grass. (laughs) Wait for me! Don't leave me behind, please. They wouldn't wait or answer. They never did. They just kept walking and exchanging idle banter while I picked myself up and ran after them in an attempt to bridge the gap. We continued like this for a while. Me, falling flat on my face, and the boys, ignoring my pleas for help. From time to time, however, I'd spot Joshua peeking over his shoulder at me. 
You know, they say the quarry is haunted. What? Really? Parker nodded. Yep, there was an accident back when the quarry was still operational. A backhoe loader crushed some guy who was working overtime. See, back then, they didn't really wear reflective vests. It was really dark that night, so his colleague didn't see him when he backed up. It was only when he heard the splat that he realized what had happened. You can still find blood-soaked grains of sand scattered around if you look closely. They say the dude's ghost roams the quarry to this day. Even from a distance, I could see Joshua's body tensing as he fidgeted nervously with his backpack. Parker removed his blue baseball cap, mounted it on his brother's head, and placed a reassuring hand on his younger brother's shoulder. Don't worry, I'll protect you. Besides, the ghost only comes out at night. Joshua fiddled with the buttons on the back of the cap, trying to adjust it to fit his smaller head. I'm not afraid. Parker chuckled and nudged his head towards the edge of the field. Of course you're not. Come on, I'll race you to the quarry. The two took off in a mad dash towards our destination. I tried to follow, but had no hope of catching up to them. I was forced to spend the rest of the trip waddling along with nothing but crickets to keep me company. The journey was worth it, though. I didn't know why the quarry closed down or what it was used for, but the result was the most amazing sandbox imaginable. Standing over the quarry was like standing on the edge of the earth. One moment, the landscape was a flat plain, and the next, it transformed into a drastic and uneven drop, revealing an impressive collection of smooth yellow sand dunes below. I imagined the quarry being the result of a giant having taken a bite right out of the valley. My cousins and I would spend hours sliding down the smaller hills as though sledding on snow and searching through the dunes at the bottom. We'd find all sorts of hidden things in the sand. Backpacks, shoes, baseball cards, rusted bikes, and other random trinkets. Once, I'd even found a wallet full of money. As soon as I showed the boys, however, Parker snatched it away from me and claimed it was his finder's fee. The only place I never ventured was on the southern wall, which we had affectionately named Devil's Drop. Not only was it the quarry's tallest point, but it was also so steep that it stood almost completely vertical. In theory, it was the quickest way back to the field, but no one had ever successfully climbed Devil's Drop. We'd exit the quarry by taking the safer and longer route around back. My cousins would often dare one another to climb Devil's Drop, but neither ever made it past the halfway point. It just so happened that, after spending several hours sledding down the dunes that afternoon, they got it in their minds to dare me to go up the treacherous hill. Hey, Twerp. What? Parker pointed towards the colossal hill. I dare you to climb Devil's Drop. What? No way! Parker glanced at his brother, then turned to me with a mischievous gleam in his eye. If you do, we'll let you play with us from now on. Joshua kept his eyes down, kicking the sand silently. I nervously played with the rim of my t-shirt, weighing my options. I really didn't want to climb Devil's Drop, but I couldn't think of an excuse that didn't make me sound like a wimp. Could I afford to say no? What's the matter, Emily? You scared? Yeah, that's what I thought. You're a scared little loser. Go play with your dolls, like a little girl, you baby. I didn't even play with dolls anymore. I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to show him I was just as capable, if not more, than he was. If I could succeed where he and his brother failed, then I wouldn't be a loser or a good-for-nothing girl anymore. 
They'd have to respect me. I grit my teeth. If I do it, you'll stop picking on me? If you climb Devil's Drop, we'll make you an honorary brother. Parker, stop. It's not funny. It's, it's too dangerous. With a wave of the hand, Parker dismissed his brother. There's just one catch. If you puss out, then you can't talk at all for the rest of your stay with us. Not a single word, and you have to do everything we tell you to do. Clear? He knew he had me. He knew I couldn't do it, but I had to at least try. Parker drove a hard bargain, but the need to be accepted by the jerk outweighed the risk of being ostracized further. I'll do it. I'm not sure at what point Parker expected me to chicken out. Before I even started? A quarter of the way up? Halfway? Whatever the case, I could feel his eyes on me as I hesitantly stumbled towards Devil's Drop, nervously examining the dangerous hill. I'm not sure if it was the peer pressure or my pride that drove me to make the first move, but I eventually started scaling the wall of shifting sand, my feet skidding back slightly with every step upward. To be honest, I was beyond terrified. I refused to look down and check my progress. Even with the soft sand underneath to cushion me, I was sure falling meant certain doom. I could hear the boys laughing below. They were probably making bets about whether or not I'd reach the next milestone. Though focused on the placement of my feet and hands, I could vaguely hear them take turns trying to psych me out. I shouldn't have been surprised to hear that they wanted me to fail. They had no desire to accept me into their inner circle, which served as motivation to succeed. I couldn't let them win. As I made my way up, I noticed a pale root sticking out from the wall. It was burrowed deep into the sandy facade as though hanging on for dear life. I grabbed it to pull myself up, but as my fingertips wrapped around it, I was taken aback by the unusual surface. It was smooth and polished, not at all like a bark-coated branch. When I tugged on it, I realized it was far meeker than I'd anticipated. It snapped under my weight, causing me to tumble down, sand scratching my face and filling my mouth with a grainy texture. My stomach did more backflips than a gymnast on a trampoline, but despite the fear and pain, I dug my hands into the wall and kicked my heels deeper. Sand cascaded into my eyes and I had to close them to temper the burning sensation. My descent only ceased when I arrived at the foot of the hill. All that progress had gone to waste. As I coughed, gagged, and tried to regain my bearings, I heard Parker's hearty laughter mocking me mercilessly from his vantage point. I wanted to give up, to cry, to run home with my tail between my legs, but then something unexpected happened. Joshua ran over to me, a concerned look on his face. I was taken completely off guard. I expected him to stand by his brother, laughing it up with him. Instead, he reached for my hand and pulled me to my feet. I could feel a small stream of blood trickling down my face. Joshua began to dab at my face with a napkin. Are you okay? Yeah. You can stop now, okay? You don't need to do this. I promise, we won't ignore you anymore. We never wanted you to get hurt. My cousin probably had no idea how much his words meant to me. I found myself getting a little teary-eyed even through Parker's disapproving grunts. A swell of motivation surged through me, giving me the boost I needed to finish the dare. I was going to conquer Devil's Drop, though not out of spite or desire to impress others. I wanted to do it for me, to prove to myself that I could. Just watch me, Josh. I'm getting to the top even if it kills me. Wait, seriously? You're really going to try again? Yes. 
Joshua gave me the thumbs up. Be careful, okay? Parker averted his gaze. Try not to fall on your ass this time. I smiled and nodded before charging towards the wall of sand. I started climbing again, more aggressively than the first time. My fingers dug deep, reaching a cold underlayer of clay I didn't even know existed underneath. This time, I managed to get a good foothold as I passed the halfway point. My Achilles tendons burned in protest the farther up I went, but I continued until my hands touched the grassy surface at the top of Devil's Drop. I could hear Joshua cheering below. With one last kick, I pushed myself over the edge. As I stood victoriously at the top of the hill, I felt proud of myself for the first time in my life. With the setting sun off on the horizon, my view seemed even more breathtaking than ever. My gaze traveled down to the quarry, where I saw Joshua bouncing excitedly and Parker clapping in disbelief, his jaw hanging so low I could have sworn he'd dislocated it. I took a moment to savor my accomplishment and then slid down a safer path to rejoin my cousins. I gotta hand it to you, you were kind of impressive. For a girl. He didn't look quite as enthused as his younger brother, and I could sense a hint of reluctance in his voice. But it was progress. Joshua looked at me, grinning from ear to ear. You'll have to show me how you did it, okay? I smiled and nodded, feeling like a hero. They bombarded me with their questions and actually listened when I answered. We played. We actually played together. As the minutes wore on, I became aware of the dimming light. Nightfall was just around the corner, but I didn't want the day to end. I was still swimming in the adrenaline rush. I felt like I had enough energy to move mountains. Joshua, however, began looking a little nervous. We should get back. We're not supposed to be here this late. Don't tell me you believe that stupid ghost story I told you. No, I'm, I'm just tired and hungry. Ooh, watch out. The ghost of the quarry is going to get you. Parker stretched his arms out in front of him and wiggled them in his brother's face. Joshua puffed his cheeks and slapped his arms away. Shut up. I, I told you, I'm just hungry. Amused, I took a seat in the sand and watched the two bicker as the sun finished its daily round. I was still soaking in my glory when a clunky noise resounded in the quarry, followed by the telltale sizzle of electricity. The area became bathed in the bright beams of two large floodlights, remnants of the mining operation from years ago. They must be on a timer. Or solar-powered. The blinding light cast a veil of darkness on anything beyond its reach. The air felt different somehow. Not crisp and cool like it usually did at nightfall, but heavy and thick with dust. I could feel the sand beneath my feet shifting as though the earth was quivering in fright. A tingling at the back of my neck made me realize just how exposed we all were. It felt as though we were being watched, yet couldn't pinpoint by who. Or by what. We should probably get out of here. Not you as well. You two are such chickens. Couldn't he feel it too? One quick look at Joshua, now clinging to Parker's arm, told me that at least one of my cousins felt the same sense of apprehension and dread as I did. There was something off about the quarry, something that twisted the familiar landscape into a stomach-turning, unnatural version of itself. I had felt irrational fear many times before back home. Whenever I'd crawled out of bed and trekked down the dark corridor to get to the washroom late at night, and the hallway looked like an abyss trying to reach towards me and suck me in. A flick of the light, however, and the feeling would go away. This was different. This fear was more potent. 
It wasn't the mind of a little girl afraid of things that went bump in the night. It was my body's own warning bells alerting me of very real danger. It was the difference between recoiling in juvenile terror and becoming charged with the energy needed to flee or to fight. But from whom? A scream erupted to my left. My head snapped towards my cousins just in time to see them come crashing to the ground. Like an anxious sprinter mistaking a pin drop for the starting pistol, I darted towards the quarry's exit, leaving my cousins behind. There were no thoughts behind my actions, just a primal reflex demanding I run. With each step, my stalled brain tried to catch up, and before I even reached the quarry's exit, I realized the boys weren't following. I spun on my heels and saw Parker holding Joshua, pulling him with the force of a strong man in a tug-of-war. Something was dragging Joshua down the dune we'd been standing on. Joshua kicked and screamed at the thing that had latched onto his ankle, but he couldn't break free. I hurriedly shuffled back to the duo, only to see a skeletal hand had seized my cousin. How is this even possible? I knelt down next to Parker, grabbed Joshua's arm, and pulled with all of my might. Hang in there! Joshua only screamed and begged for help. The the hand! Get the hand! I followed his gaze to the skeletal hand and let go of Joshua with the intention of batting it away, but as soon as I did, my cousin's body was jerked down violently and his lower legs disappeared under a blanket of sand. Shit! Parker's face was turning red and I could tell by how his arms were trembling that he wouldn't be able to hold on much longer. As though on cue, his arms flew back like an elastic band snapping in two. Joshua dug his hands into the sand, clawing at the surface like rakes in a zen garden. I lunged for his arms, but they flew by me like teasing a cat with a string toy. Another tug and he was submerged up to his waist. I dove towards him a second time, this time grabbing hold of his arm, but it kept slipping out of my sweaty palms. Thankfully, Parker recovered and caught Joshua. Now it was three against one, but Joshua was still sinking. Help me. We were trying. We were pulling with all our might, but the deeper he went, the harder it got to pull him out. Sweat and tears poured down the sides of my face. Through gasping breaths, I repeated Joshua's name as though it were a mantra capable of turning the tide in our favor. But as the bony appendage crawled out of the sand and up Joshua's back, followed by a second arm, it became clear that there was nothing we could do to save him. We weren't about to give up, though, even as the creature pulled Joshua deeper in and further down the dune. Though my hands slipped multiple times, Parker remained steady, never letting go of his brother. Watching it all unfold was torture. I could only imagine the kind of terror Joshua must have been experiencing as he was pulled in waist deep, then up to his chest and soon to his mouth. The sand muffled his screams. Soon only his hands remained above ground. We held them. We pulled and pulled, but we couldn't get him out. Then, when they became submerged, they seemed to dissolve. It wasn't as though they slipped out of my grasp. One second, I had a vice-like grip around his wrist, and the next, I was holding a handful of dirt. I pulled my hands out and quickly pawed at the ground, trying to clear away the sand to find Joshua, but it was in vain. Parker dug like a dog trying to get to a bone, panting breathlessly as he screamed his brother's name. Sand shifted and fell, but Joshua was gone. I put my hands on my knees, looking at the ground in shock as Parker continued his pointless endeavor. It didn't matter how deep he dug. His brother wouldn't be found. My tears dampened the sand, creating splotches of mud. I didn't know what to do or say. Everything felt so surreal. Parker's efforts slowed to a stop, and he was pounding his arms on the ground. 
Then, it came back. A few dunes over, I spotted the pallet arms that had ripped my cousin from my grasp. Its fingers twitched menacingly before it started crawling towards us. Like before, my body reacted before my brain could even analyze the situation, and it's a good thing it did. I grabbed Parker's arm and yanked him to his feet. We have to go now! Parker didn't answer. His tear-stained face stared at the empty hole he'd dug. Holding onto his wrist tightly, I ran towards Devil's Drop. There was no other choice. If we took the regular route out of the quarry, we risk getting caught by the ever-approaching hands. Thankfully, with a bit of encouragement in the form of violent tugs, Parker's body followed behind. The hand slid through the sand, poking out like a shark's fin in the waves. It was gaining on us. At the foot of the hill, I pinned Parker to the wall and pushed him upwards. Climb! He obeyed blankly. He knew how to make it halfway up on his own, and I fully intended to push him the rest of the way. As we reached the midpoint, I noticed the odd twig I'd broken earlier. I don't know how I didn't recognize the shape of the humerus when I first saw it. I'd learned the shapes and names of the larger bones of the body in class just a few months before, but I suppose I overlooked it because it wasn't something I expected to see latching onto the hill of a sand quarry in the middle of nowhere. Had someone unsuccessfully tried to escape the monster like we were now? I was nervous it'd suddenly start to move, but we didn't have time to shimmy out of its reach. We had to risk it. I rammed into Parker's behind, trying to help him up as quickly as possible. I was exhausted, my arms and legs growing tired as the adrenaline wore off. Just a bit further, I thought to myself. We were almost at the top. I could see the edge clearly against the darkened sky. Out of breath, out of energy, and with every muscle in my body aching, I pushed Parker over the edge, then threw my arm and felt the cool grass against my skin. Just as I was pulling my torso over, I felt a tug on my foot. I glanced over my shoulder and saw not just a hand, but an entire upper body had emerged from the sandy and clay wall. I shrieked at the sight of it. Tendons and bits of flesh still clung to parts of its anatomy, giving it the appearance of a mummy dragged several miles over gravel. Somehow, I could read menace on a face that lacked all the features necessary to convey emotion. There was no way I was letting it get me. Using my free foot, I knocked off the shoe it was holding and thrust myself onto solid ground. Parker was on all fours, likely having not moved since he'd been thrown over the edge. There was a vacant, traumatized expression on his face. My heart sunk a bit for his sake, but we didn't have time for this. We had no idea if the monstrous forms burrow their way beyond the quarry, so we had to keep going. We could mourn later. With a missing shoe and a catatonic cousin to drag along, I made my way through the field of cotton, looking over my shoulders nervously for any signs of the skeletons. Thankfully, they didn't pursue us. I didn't feel safe until the door shut behind Parker and I. My cousin's condition didn't seem to change once we reached the safe haven. The look of shock in his eyes was still very much present, and he looked as though in a trance. You were late. When we failed to respond, me because I was catching my breath, and Parker because he didn't seem even remotely present, she peered into the hall and examined us for a moment. She must have sensed something was wrong because her disinterested gaze suddenly morphed into a semblance of worry. Where's Joshua? Parker staggered back, bumped into a wall, and slid down to a seated position where he remained in absolute silence. I broke down in tears, but tried my best to explain what had happened. The quarry, the skeletons, the way Joshua had been dragged under. I'm not sure how much of it she understood through my sobs and barely coherent babbling, but she understood one thing. Joshua was gone. 
and with this realization came anger. Her eyebrows arched, her nostrils flared, and her body tensed. In that moment, I was more afraid of my aunt than of the skeletal being that I'd barely managed to escape. Without a word, she grabbed the phone and pounded the numbers 911 as hard as one would with typewriter keys. She demanded they dispatch a full rescue team for her missing child, never once catering to the one that had returned. The police were quick to arrive and immediately started asking questions. What happened? How long had Joshua been missing? Where did it happen? I tried to answer, but my aunt kept pushing me behind her as though shielding me from the uniformed men she herself had called. She explained her son had gone missing in the sand quarry, leaving out the parts about the creature we'd seen. We were whisked away in the back of a squad car and driven to the quarry. As soon as I got out of the car, I could sense a clear shift in the atmosphere. The air felt and smelled better. The quarry seemed calmer, normal even. The floodlights, which had announced the arrival of night, had burned out, leaving only the red and blue lights of the squad cars to illuminate the sandy landscape. The officer who'd escorted me there turned to me. Where did you last see the boy? I peered at the sandy hills, pointed to the one where I thought we'd been attacked, but I couldn't see Joshua's drag marks in the sand. Was I mistaken? My eyes wandered from dune to dune, but everywhere I looked, I could see only smooth and undisturbed sand, like the beach on a deserted island. It was as though nothing had happened. My aunt ran into the quarry, followed by a small army of flashlight-wielding officers. They combed through the dunes all night, shouting Joshua's name in the hopes of finding him. All the while, Parker stayed in the back seat of the police car, staring blankly at the quarry with lightless eyes. His mother searched desperately for her missing son, never stopping for a break or a drink of water. Even as the officers began to lose hope of finding him alive, she continued to dig and scream her son's name, her hands bleeding from handling the coarse sand and rocks. By morning, a group of volunteers had assembled and scoured every last inch of the sand quarry, but couldn't find a single trace of my cousin. As the hours were on and the search party thinned, the authorities were forced to call the search off. It was concluded that Joshua had been engulfed by a sinkhole and that his body would be impossible to retrieve. My grieving aunt watched as the last of the officers drove away. As soon as their taillights disappeared on the horizon, she stomped past me and towards her motionless son, her face turning red and contorting in a look of grief-stricken anger. It's all your fault. You were supposed to be watching him. Parker stared blankly, unmoving. My aunt grabbed him by the shoulders and pulled him to his feet. Are you listening to me? She shook him violently, but didn't get a reaction out of him. You're just like your damn father, you know that? Her arm reared back. I wanted to say something, but the words were trapped in my throat and my body was paralyzed. Unable to watch, I closed my eyes and cringed as she slapped Parker across the face so hard it left a palm print. I couldn't even imagine being in Parker's shoes. The only thing keeping me from crying was the fear that my aunt would hear me and direct her anger at me instead. She threw Parker against the wall and hit him again and again while I watched, powerless. Just when I thought she'd never stop, Parker let out a weak whimper. I... I... I'm... sorry. A few teardrops soaked into the carpet at his feet. My aunt's arm froze as she realized what she was doing. Mascara started running down her cheeks. She wrapped her arms around her son, buried her face against the top of his head, and collapsed on the floor. Mom? Mom? I... 
I'm so sorry. She shook her head and ran a hand through his hair. Shh. It's going to be all right. Parker, who'd always been the most rough-and-tumble member of our trio, looked as fragile as a porcelain doll in his mother's arms. They sat there for a while, holding one another and crying. Even long after they both ran out of tears to shed, my aunt continued to rock Parker as softly as a newborn child. My parents arrived later that day and took me home. I haven't seen Parker or my aunt since that day. I heard Parker moved in with his father a few months later, after Child Protective Services deemed his mother an unfit parent. It seemed that someone, a teacher most likely, had been building a case against her, having spotted signs of abuse. Parker had a few rough years, but he eventually went to college, got a job, married, and had a few kids of his own. I also heard that, after many counseling sessions, he reconciled with his mother and even let her babysit her grandbabies from time to time. I lived my life like anyone else would, but I could never shake the feeling of guilt I felt at Joshua's death. What if I'd held him tighter? What if I'd been just a teeny bit stronger? For the first time since the incident, I decided to return to the quarry. I guess I needed closure. As I made my way across the dunes, I spotted something sticking out of the sand. It was Joshua's, or rather Parker's, blue baseball cap. And that's when I remembered all the trinkets we'd found in the sand, and wondered silently just how many souls the quarry had taken. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 